You are now tuning in to the Own the Build podcast. Join Sealing's very own Paul Hemming, where each week he interviews experts from the world of construction and asks all the important questions around intelligent construction management. Hello and welcome to episode number 66, a lovely number if you ask me, of the Own the Build podcast with me, Paul Hemming. Guys, you know that I'm a bit like this, so I'm going to have to ask you again at the top of the show if you would be so kind to leave us a lovely review on Apple Podcasts and to subscribe to our new YouTube channel on Own the Build and also School of Sub with our sister company. And then the title of today's show, it's the one we've all been waiting for, it is talking architecture with the government and i am so pleased to welcome to the show today sarah allen who is head of architecture at the department for leveling up housing and communities welcome to today's show sarah thank you very much paul it's a pleasure to be here very pleased to be invited (laughs) oh not as pleased as i am to have you on the show you're the first (laughs) government employed guest on the show and i've been crowing about it to everyone that I'm going to be speaking to Sarah. (laughs) And honestly, I've been asking, I'm so, you know, I've got so little between my own two ears that the the 65 people that have been on the show prior, I've been speaking to them and saying, have you got any intelligent questions that I could ask Sarah when she comes on the show? So I've got a back catalogue, don't worry. (laughs) So I know you, Sarah, from a few years ago when we crossed paths, when you were a developer, I was obviously founder of C-Link and we uh, did some work together which was cool but for everybody else who doesn't know about you your experience and your career path to today could you share a little bit about yourself? Yes certainly Um, so uh, I'm an architect I'm an urban designer and project manager and I've been working for over 25 years in both private practice and as a client advisor for a number of years and then more recently I was a client in a local authority and then the last nine years um, I worked at Solid Space which was a small super cool developer Uh, yes small architect-led developer Um, very cool it was great fun Um, and we were working on projects right from the early stages of finding sites to building projects, working with people moving into their homes. And uh, so so all the way through the development process. So quite a sort of cross-section of expertise. And so then what led you from your background in architecture and then more recently you were MD at Solid Space, the SME developer, what led you to becoming head of architecture? Well, um, it was just one of those sort of serendipitous moments, I suppose. <laughs> I just saw saw and saw the advert and thought, "Oh, that looks interesting." And uh, and just so that it wasn't really a, a sort of career decision. I just thought, "Well, I'll just try that out." Give it a go. Yes, working for quite a long time for solid space and and I could easily have stayed there for longer um, but thought well I've my 
previous, one of my previous roles was working for an organization called Commission for Architecture and Built Environment. And that was very much about influencing policies around design and sort of raising the importance of design across a public sector and particularly local authorities in the area I was working um, around supporting sort of housing and designing better homes and and the role of urban design. And so this sort of seemed like a really good way to bring my sort of more recent, quite practical experience working in the development sector to um, back into a sort of policy environment, but at a sort of much bigger scale. (laughs) Yeah, just a little bit bigger. But no, it's really interesting because a lot of the listeners will be SMEs you have really relevant contemporary experience directing an SME property developer, working on SME schemes. And you're now someone who is positioned in and around policy, helping it be implemented. So I'm really interested to speak to you about that and see kind of like what your perspective is. I always ask one question at the start of the show. And I ask, what is one common myth about your current role? So I'm going to ask... What is one common myth about working for the government that you would like to debunk? And I'm not going to make any jokes about raves and parties that are clearly happening all the time. (laughs) I suppose one of the common myths is that perhaps government things happen very slowly in government. And but it may look like that from the outside, but actually it's incredibly busy there's sort of huge amounts happening all the time within the within the time that I've been there which is the last six months nearly is that a myth that you had in your mind before you re- took this position you thought it might be quite slow paced yes yes that things really? take a long time because uh, I, I suppose for in you know, the world we're in which is where you're looking at sort of changes in planning or changes in construction coming from government you hear about you know changes maybe coming but you don't really see them for a while but actually it's a huge amount of of work of you know people drafting and testing and and sort of consulting and sort of convening experts and talking to a huge range of people and that's sort of going on all the time and then working across across government I suppose that's another thing of government departments are really very big organizations Um, and there's a lot of um, sort of working across government that perhaps people may not on the outside sort of imagine. So whilst whilst we're thinking you know it's taking we're waiting months for implementation for like planning policy as an example that you said you, you you hear about it and then you know that there's a deadline where it's going to happen you guys are scurrying around every single day trying to make it happen testing it and it's a rapid pace not the slow pace i like that because that's exactly the myth that i have in my mind of you know just chilling <laughs> you don't look like a woman who's just been chilling out this week <laughs> No, that's really cool. And today I want to, like I said, understand a little bit more about, because I have no idea what the policy is around architecture um, from the government. Perhaps I do, but I'm really interested to learn a little bit more about that. So 
first of all, kind of what are your agreed objectives as a department? Well, one of our main priorities that has sort of changed the direction of the department in the last six months is um, levelling up and the levelling up white paper, which was published in February this year. And that's um, sort of given quite um, a significant shift in focus um, because it's the levelling up white paper sort of recognised that um, some places haven't had the economic or geographic advantages of others and have been left behind um simply put the the north versus the south i know that's oversimplifying but that is oversimplifying um because there are i mean i think one of the really important bits of sort of evidence um, that has come out is that actually there are quite significant disparities that occur at a very local level so even places wherever they may be in a sort of broader geographical or regional sense can have quite significant disparities within them so even within a local authority area you can you can have quite significant issues so the so the department is sort of looking at how to focus um, in those um, areas that the white paper highlighted. What um, does that actually look like for those areas that have been uh, that have fallen behind? Well, it's it's sort of trying to address a range of things. So, in looking at the health of people in left behind places, thinking about how to restore um, a sense of community, a sense of sort of pride in places importance of empowering local leadership and also um, which I suppose is something that we've all experienced over the pandemic is the importance of the role of of digital communication and that there are sort of quite significant disparities in that across the country and how to how to even all those things out so it's it's quite a complicated thing and there's a huge amount of work to do to work out what needs to be done but the white paper um, sets out the direction of travel which you know one of the sort of first changes was was actually the change in the name of the department which is really sort of signaling that you know it's now it was the ministry of housing communities and local government and now the department for leveling up housing and communities so you know it's signaling that this and so significant yes so I understand the the broader you want to improve the health of people. So I'm guessing that involves impro- improving the health of buildings, improving infrastructure and access. What does it mean? You've got this white paper saying that we need to level up in inverted commas. What does it actually mean for the role of architecture? So I think that comes down to thinking about where homes are built, how we can bring the importance of placemaking to all places so that economic disparities don't mean that you can't have access to a good home that's in a location where you can access shops and good schools. Public services. Yes, good access to public transport um, and local public transport and also in places that aren't sort of dominated by traffic. 
and, and then also down to the design of homes themselves, thinking about their environmental performance for new and existing homes. And so the, you know, the building regulations is already um, sort of signalling that change with the uplift that's coming in to place. With the future homes standard, built into the so future home standard. The standard is coming in a couple of years, but the uplift to part L and part F uh, is is coming this summer, so and and that's already and and also looking at overheating as well. So they're quite sort of significant things that sort of start to signal a change in direction. Because this is interesting. We talked um, only a few episodes ago. Actually, the episode title was "Build into the Future Home Standard," and although it's not something that is immediately impactful i think is it 2025 that it's coming in yes um, yes with yeah so it's a few it's a few years away but obviously it's something that everyone is going to have to do in the future so we were talking at, about it from the angle of an sme developer who was listening to it and thinking that is something that i'm going to have to do absolutely in the future so why not start getting ahead and starting to plan to meet the future home standard now um, and, and getting abreast of the situation effectively is it a similar thing with this with the leveling up white paper is there then something that if you were yourself one year ago when you were managing director of an sme developer is there something that you would would this white paper and what is happening in government be changing the way you are planning your business well i think the leveling leveling up white paper is is trying to deal with sort of very sort of broad but but sort of very complex um, issues across wide areas of change. So actually for a small developer, you know, wouldn't see those changes straight away. But, you know, the opportunity, you know, by just signalling that actually there will be a focus on areas that haven't had the opportunities that other places have, does uh, hopefully start to make people more confident that to invest in those areas, to build in those areas. Opportunities to invest and that there will be more more sort of focus and possibly more resource in those places. So and, and that's you know Where are those places out of interest, Sarah? As a for instance? I mean they're all across the country. So they so they you know they, they haven't been firmly announced yet, but I think within the levelling up paper it's sort of quite sort of clear that they aren't the places that are that are you know have high land values, for example, and that have had the benefits of good transport connections, and you know so that, so that they are you know, there are areas. Where... I, I was almost being far too. I was being way too simplistic earlier. It was almost a bit tongue in cheek saying the south and the north, but because somewhere like Manchester wouldn't be, I imagine, or Birmingham wouldn't be in the leveling up. In, it wouldn't be one of those places, but the, maybe the towns or the places around it would perhaps be. Yeah, so that's so that's the th- it's it's rather than saying it's a it's a regional wide issue. Um, so saying the sort of disparities are at sometimes at quite a local level. So you can have towns or sort of areas within an authority that um, that, that might be um, experiencing those challenges but it's not universal across the whole region or, or even sometimes across an authority area yeah and that therefore the opportunity for the developer exists in that there is 
a focus going into those areas and those regions and therefore they become places that you would imagine the property value will eventually uh, appreciate in those areas because those areas are going to get better and that's the focus of the government right yes well that's that's the aim is to is that you know they're able to have the opportunities and into the long term to to change and and have the not just the physical benefits but also um the sort of benefits of culture sort of some of the intangible benefits of innovating that other more successful places have had for a while total and utter sense to me sarah and i'm going to drill down into it in a little bit more detail but right after this break Hello, it's me again. I wanted to share a quick story with you on why I co-founded Sealink with my best mate, Chris. Chris and I, we're both QSs, and this is going to sound sad, but one night we were sat in the pub talking about subcontract tendering and we realised the industry had a problem. Number one, procurement was too paper-based. Number two, it was too time-consuming and every QS had their own unique way of doing things. And number three, perhaps most importantly, If you want to competitively tender, you need to know hundreds of the best subcontractors. We simply didn't. That's why we created C-Link. It's software to solve subcontract tendering. We wanted to remove these challenges and help the industry get better. So if you or someone you know tenders with subcontractors, you've got to see our software. Head over to our link, www.get.c-link.com forward slash podcast to find out more. I will include it in the description box. So again, there's no excuses. Now, let's get right back to the show. Now, Sarah, for all of our long-lasting listeners, they know that I am a huge fan of accents. And we have had some fantastic accents on the show. I have to say that I do find your voice to be particularly soothing. And I know Umar feels exactly the same, our producer. It's a lovely, lovely voice you have. <laughs> Thank you. I think that's years <laughs> of listening to Radio 4. That's right. <laughs> is that what More it is? I can put it down to. <laughs> <laughs> You've mastered it. Maybe, maybe that's a, another career for you. <laughs> so we kind of talked in the first part of the show about overall policy and strategy um in your role now obviously it's architecturally focused it's design focused when the government is considering housing and like the importance of good design what does that like what does that mean what does it what does it mean to the government what does it mean to you in your role well so i sit within the planning directorate in the department so we look after uh, or the planning directorate looks after the national planning policy framework and the um, national design guides and national planning guidance that sits underneath that and so we have a national design guide and the national model design code and those set out really clearly the importance of creating well-designed places and the National Planning Policy Framework sets out the national policies that give the direction for 
planning across England. And one of the sort of key areas is creating successful places and the role of design in doing that. And part of that is the importance of approving design that is good and turning down poor quality design. Um, so that's to so having design expressed so clearly within at the national level is 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 really important. What does that look like, though? How how, how is design expressed at the national level? Excuse my naivety or ignorance. So, so within the national planning policy framework, it says explicitly good design, and then that is sort of expressed more clearly within the national design guide about. It, which highlights the 10 characteristics of well-designed places and local authorities should be using those documents to help them make decisions about planning applications. So when approving a scheme that is well-designed based on those 10 characteristics, um, that's sort of very explicit and projects or planning applications that are seen to not be well-designed um, it's also quite clear that um, they shouldn't be approving them. So you know, in the past, design hasn't always been such a priority. And then having sort of detailed guidance that sets a clear framework for um, what good design will mean in different places. What does it mean to you? What good design Good design, yeah. Um, good design means places and buildings that are built to last, that they're fit for purpose, um, so they meet the needs of, of the range of users and and that also delights, give pleasure. You know, that the design can be beautiful. Um, uh, well, I remember one of your schemes at uh, Solid Space and it was absolutely beautiful so i know how i know how passionate you are about design which is why it's great that you're in the position that you are now for the rest of us yes well thanks um um yeah and and i think you know being able to design principles that you that you you, you that you might look at for an individual building thinking about well what does what does that mean for a place which is much more complex because you're thinking about um you know places change sometimes very rapidly, but often sort of over over long periods of time. So thinking about what stays and what's important, what is the um, sort of character and identity of, of a place that can inform new development. And, and, and also, you know, what's key is, is that, you know, people have to be at the centre of it all. So, you know, People live in, obviously live in homes, work in offices, travel between places and uh, sort of creating environments that are convivial and, and encourage activity on streets and make people feel safe and secure and sort of last into the future um, is, is critical for all of us. You talked there about long lasting and uh, designing for a home versus designing for a place is, is is very different, and that that resonates with me for sure. What do you? How do you see the future of like the cities? Are they changing? Is that something like in terms of how we lay them out, or how we try to rearrange them almost in terms of? I'm 
I'm thinking here about the amount of roads we have and not much is pedestrianised. Everything is for the car, effectively. That's how we designed our cities. Is there, given everything else that is going on in the world with sustainability and given that that is such a huge part of what government policy is centred on at the moment, is there changes to the cities that you see coming in? Is there things that are planned? Yes. I mean, local authorities have one of their key functions is their sort of spatial planning side. So they create a local plan. And in those local plans, they set out their vision for how their boroughs or districts or counties will change. And sort of planning ahead, thinking about sites that might come forward and the scale of change. So are places growing? Where are they growing? Are they growing on the edges? Are they is there, are they intensifying in the centre? How to provide transport and enough schools? And so, you know, that that is sort of one of the um, sort of really fundamental roles for a lo- local authority is sort of planning for the change change of places into the future. And one of the sort of key pieces of work that I've been involved in now and, and um, sort of when I started was is, is about um, supporting the development of design codes which help to provide a clear framework for starting to plan the future changes of those places. So they are a clear set of rules that that can guide um, design for large sites or neighbourhoods or even covering a wider local authority area. And they are sort of written and graphic documents with very clear parameters. Visions for the future. Yes. Well they're they're so so part of producing a design code is to have a clear vision, but also um, they're actually quite directive. So um, they're often sort of three-dimensional, they're illustrated, and and they include sort of metrics and sort of instructions about, you know, this is what this place could, should um, be like. So you might set heights for buildings or widths of building frontages or um, relationships between buildings and streets and street widths, uh, relationship of buildings to open spaces. So they really are planning out how a place could be better in the future. And they will then you know, set out for the developer, this is what we expect from you. So one of the big things that the National Model Design Code is doing is encouraging local authorities to produce design codes. Um, and so Developers often produce them at the moment and they produce them for large sites. But the benefit of a local authority being able to produce a design code and then adopting it as part of a supplementary planning document is it gives it weight within the planning process. And it gives the local authority ownership um, and to also provide certainty to developers about what is expected um, so are you having lots of really good conversations at a local level where you're helping people to craft the design code and rules for their borough district, et cetera, as you were just saying? Yes, yes. So so we did um, a pilot um, last year with um, 14 
local authorities where they tested the national model design code. And so not all of them were producing design codes, but they used that document. And it was an opportunity to sort of test how well it was working. And now we're working with um, 21 local authorities and four neighbourhood planning groups to produce design codes using the national model design code. Must be exciting, actually. It is. It's, it's, it is very exciting because it's working. Uh, we're working across all the regions in England, the nine, the nine regions, but also a whole cross section of types of design code, yeah. different types of locations, there are town centres, urban extensions. There I'm are- excited, Sarah, because I know from having worked with you in the past, Yes. Not only how passionate you are about high quality design, but also how high quality the design that you have been involved with is. And the the projects that I saw that you were working on, the end product was amazing. So I think it's going to be a fantastic world that we're all going to start to live in if it's a world where you have influenced the design, Sarah. So it can only be a good thing for us all. Well, obviously, there's a team. You have a team. Yeah, I'm not saying it's just you, but if you, I'm just pleased that you're involved in it. And also, I mean, the the opportunity is really um, for all we've called them the um, so the Pathfinder project. So all the Pathfinders, they've received some funding and the opportunities for them where they can to bolster their in-house expertise, but also um, I'm sure many of them will be sort of securing external support to help them. I was going to ask how, how, how they resource doing local design code, because that is, you need expertise and it's it's must be quite tough to resource that, given budgets and so on, I guess. Yes. Well, the interesting thing, so from the... Um, our sort of first round of pilots, I think one of the key sort of lessons was and, and the sort of bits of the sort of bits of feedback from the pilot local authorities was the that you know, some of them wouldn't have been able to produce a design code without the funding, which enabled them to secure the resource and expertise they needed to produce it. And um, that is an ongoing challenge. And so this, you know, these are things that don't just happen overnight. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. But it must be, it's interesting to influence it, right? And to bring good resource, intelligent designers and people into these organisations so that then it filters down, right, into the developers. Well, yes. And also to... um, I think being able to to sort of do this in a in an incremental way, so you know, working with twenty five organisations, and and it's really it's you know we're all learning together. So you know we uh, in in government are, are learning from those projects. It hasn't been running sort of very long. We it, it, we just started in March, um, and it's a twelve month program. So. You know what's quite exciting is this sort of iterative process of how we'll be able to draw from the phase one pilots, building on that, the lessons there and some of the challenges, and how you know with phase two hopefully we'll be able to get some really positive 
um, engagement that that produces the design codes that lo- not only the local authorities but the um, communities as well have have you know, had a chance to shape and engage with. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? It's, it's the community engagement. It's, that's what's so nice about just thinking about that as a policy in terms of it's the local nature of it. It's having a little bit more control over the local environment for the local people, right? Yes, yes, and I, I, and, I and that's you know really critical in you know when the environment around you is changing and you feel you don't have a say in it. Um, you know the whole point of of the planning process is to be able to give people a say and I think what um, design codes can do is bring that discussion at a much earlier stage than planning application so so that people are talking more broadly about the changes that they would like to see and I think that can be a much more positive process and it also is an opportunity to bring in developers and landowners into that process early on um, so that there's you know, greater clarity and understanding by all parties about what is expected, what is achievable, and I suppose realistic as well, sort of balancing um, the aspirations and testing them through master planning and and design codes. Yeah, it's intriguing to see how it's going to play out and impact. So it's, it's, it's a 12-month programme which finishes in March 23, were you saying? Yes, yes. And well, we are in safe hands with you, Sarah. We are in safe, safe hands. <laughs> I, I, I do have um, one last question that I wanted to ask you. It was a question that someone who came on the show said that they would have been really interested to ask you. And I'm not 100% sure if you're best placed to answer it for me. It's about BIM, because we've talked about BIM quite a bit on the programme, and we are largely an SME audience. Uh, and we've 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 talked about the struggle really between the tier ones or the larger organisations where BIM is proving to be impactful slowly but surely and is being onboarded more and more, but that it hasn't really seeped through at any real scale to the more SME projects. Um, and I was just interested to understand what your view on that is now, given your previous experience and current role. Well, BIM doesn't sit within my department it sits within oh. department for business energy that's a good get out of jail free card um but still it you know it is very important and i know that they are continuing to do or, or sort of work on it and sort of roll it out um and and i think something that they've done recently is with the center for digital built britain um where they commissioned them um, to develop an integrated information management contract. So basically, uh, it's really trying to encourage a more collaborative approach to BIM um, and also encouraging sort of early supply chain involvement and supporting MMC. And Yes, as, as sort of my experience before I came to the department, that these things are quite challenging for small businesses, not least because of the cost, but but everything is sort of geared at the larger scale. Uh, but I think the aim is that you know, this in time this will become something that um, seeps all the scale. way down to us. Well, that all scales of business will be able to engage with, and it's really 
as as we both know, it takes a long time for change to happen in construction. Yeah, definitely. And that, that's that's I guess in some ways a little bit the frustration from my side is that still BIM it's taken long enough to impact tier ones. I still think there's a long way to go on that front, to be honest with you. But it's just we've talked about it a lot on in terms of SMEs and there are massive benefits to be had, of course there are just feel like it's nowhere near touching so we're gonna to have to ask you to uh press the fast forward button on that for us <laughs> but all jokes aside sarah you are um a fascinating person to speak to with your lovely soothing voice and all the all the things that you have to say of course thank you so much for coming on the show that's a pleasure and thank you very much for inviting me the pleasure was all mine sarah and guys one last shout out if i can if you could uh, review and leave us a okay, uh, five-star rating. I will be very, very happy. I will speak to you all next week and uh, have a good week ahead. Cheers. Cheers.